to this week's episode of Listen In with Shamika Pickett, Brandon Green, and Daniel Hill. This is Shamika, one of the Listen In co-hosts. I want to share a note before you dive into this episode. White privilege has dimension, and we discuss just one aspect of it in this episode. We have future episodes to cover the full dimension of the topic. That's the note. Now you can dive in. Thanks for listening in. What's up? Welcome to the Listen In Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Shamika Pickett. I'm Brandon Green. I'm Daniel Hill. Awesome. How are you two today? Hanging in there. Yeah, doing well. Good, good. That's, yeah. You didn't say tired today. I didn't say tired today. <laughs> I got some good. energy today. That's good. I am also doing well. Um, so today we're going to have a conversation that's a little different than the conversations that we've had over the previous episodes. In that we're going to sit in some of the concepts and ideas that we've just talked about over previous episodes, but we're also going to consider some new ideas. Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll be inviting listeners to consider these ideas with us. Um, for some of you, perhaps these ideas will not be new. For others, um, they will be new. Um, so we invite you to journey with us um, as we consider the things we'll, that will emerge over the course of the conversation. And so today I heard a term um, that struck me that I liked a lot because it reminded me of white supremacy. It was used in the context of a conversation about white supremacy, but this person called white supremacy an open secret. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me go and look up open secret. And there were two definitions. Um, But the one that stood out the most that I thought was most applicable to this conversation is the definition that says that an open secret is something that is widely known to be true, but which none of the people most intimately concerned are willing to categorically acknowledge in public. Mm. That's really, that's right on. Yeah, something that's widely known to be true, yeah. but which none of the people most intimately concerned are categorically willing to categorically acknowledge in public. Mm-hmm. Well, I like that. Yeah, doesn't like it fit that. well with, yeah. with white supremacy? Um, There's also an article that was published this week that I can't wait to read, but it talks about how conversations and work related to anti-racism and confronting white supremacy have reached an all-time high in comparison to the discomfort with which folks had about talking about it and and confronting it in years past, too. Um, So the open secret is becoming a little bit less of a secret, Mm -hmm. Um, or maybe that's exactly what makes it it an open secret, right? There you go, yeah. Um, So hopefully we'll have more people who are um, categorically willing to acknowledge it in public. But that also made me think about complicity. Mm. Um, And so when we talk about white supremacy, complicity is a term that we use a lot because we're typically trying to um, help people to see that... um, as we've said a lot on this podcast, that white supremacy is atmospheric, Mm -hmm. right? So that means it's in the air we breathe, it's in everything. Um, And another term that we use on this podcast to talk about the atmospheric nature of white supremacy is the narrative of racial hierarchy, Mm -hmm. right? And so that narrative is the ongoing story of white supremacy, right? It tells us that whiteness is superior and anything proximate to or like blackness is inferior. Mm -hmm. And so um, because white supremacy is atmospheric, it is our position that the starting point for all of the conversations that we have on the Listen In podcast is not, is white supremacy in me? The starting point for conversations is, it is in me. Where else can I find it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's inclusive of people, in color, of people of color as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so. extremely important to say. Yeah. 
Um, so set all of that to set that up before I transition into some of the points that I want us to sit in. Are there any comments or thoughts or ideas that you have about anything that I've covered so far before we get moving? I, I would just say that last point you just made there, it, we're saying that just kind of on the fly, but I, I still believe that represents probably, if not the biggest, one of the biggest transformational shifts for the typical white person. Um, I think it goes really deep in us that we need we feel a need to prove that it's not in us, that we're exempt above it, graduated from it. Um, so for us to continue to kind of come back to that notion and say, that's just, we're just completely missing the boat when we talk like that. It's not whether it's in us, but how'd you say it's not whether it's in us, but where in us? Yeah, it is in us and we're looking for everywhere we can find it. Yeah. Yeah. Just accentuating again, how just basic that is to kind of our starting point. And yet I would say for most of us, that's, that, that actually represents probably its own major transformational point right there mm-hmm. i think i think that's counterintuitive to any kind of measurement of health right like yeah. you, the idea is that like i i don't have this disease and that pre, that presumes health but what we're articulating is that the beginning of health is being able to say that it is in you that's yeah. a completely different way of approaching it and um and it's for, for it's uh, comparable to like having undiscovered tumors or cancer or mm-hmm. something like that inside your being and at some juncture, you're going to have to engage it. If you if you can continue to live your life and it feels like nothing's happening, you can move on with your life without any sort of uh, ramifications for it. In the meantime, your body's being, you know, riddled from the inside out, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I, I think um, we've seen that manifest with white supremacy as well. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me, too, of the spectrum that we talk about a lot <clears throat> on the podcast and how we describe that apathy is at one end of the spectrum and that zeal is at the other mm-hmm. end of the spectrum and that self-interrogation and self-reflection sits in the middle of that spectrum. Yeah. And the reason we underscore that is because, again, our starting point for these conversations is that white supremacy is in us. And it is our hope that all of our, our listeners um, will cultivate um, and nurture the habit of daily self-introspection um, and self-interrogation around white supremacy. And that speaks to why apathy is such a dangerous thing, too. Like, if it was, if apathy was about something, well, there's something outside of you that you're not engaging. Mm-hmm. That's a different thing, you know. But if ap- if you're apathetic with something that's in you, then you're right. you're perpetuating something deadly. That yeah. and your inactivity is a deadly course of action. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. it's a, it's a completely different way of looking at it. And I think it lines up. Um, not like we planned it that way, but you know, like that that if. Again, if we articulate it as that white supremacy is in everyone and that then apathy for anyone is a threat to everyone, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. um, so Mm -hmm. it's a inactivity is a deadly course. That's a that's another one. You're good at those. uh, those like one liners that like really carry a lot of punch to it. So that's, that's that's powerful. So that actually brings us, I think that comment there, Brandon, brings us to a point that we were going to discuss later in the episode. Um, But one of the things that um, I think you may have even um, shared with listeners that I've said it to you in private conversations, Daniel, but one of the things that I've been saying a lot lately is that for white people who do not know that they're complicit with white supremacy and that they're perpetuating it, that their um, ignorance of that makes them a lethal threat to me and black people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So if you're in bondage to or you're tethered to whiteness and if you don't know it, you present a threat to me um, because you don't have any awareness or don't care to have any awareness of how you wield that weapon. Um, And the wielding of that weapon, as we know, painfully well, can lead to um, death. Yeah. It can lead to death of other black people. Um, So, yeah, you said that that struck you. Um, in a different way when you heard me say it over the last few months, you mind saying a little bit more about why? Um, 
I guess I just often have this experience listening to y'all that, especially if I'm thinking you two and kind of a broader community of kind of deep thinkers around race stuff, um, there's stuff that you guys kind of say almost offhandedly that's just kind of like a no-duh that I think is uh, um, uh, can be really charred. Uh, you know, so I guess just like say it bluntly, like you've said different versions of that, maybe even softer a little bit, but you've said versions like that in our church community, and it's pretty typical that those of us who are white hear that and before even getting there's something inviting in there there's something transformational that we can engage with but it, it it's pretty arresting it's pretty confrontational to hear it first you know I, I don't think any of us who are white ever think of ourselves as a threat um to anybody you know but especially a black person um and again it's kind of this inverse thing you most of us most of us who are white are listening to a podcast like this or coming to a church like ours we're intentionally doing so because we care deeply about the problem of race and trying to show up in a way that is going to address it in a positive kind of way. So to have kind of a starting conversation, um, my the degree to which I lack awareness of this or I'm not attuned to my complicity with whiteness, I represent a threat to you. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think that just cuts super, super deep and um, it's staggering, you know? And yeah. so before we even can kind of figure out what to do with that, I think most of us have to like allow ourselves to be staggered and kind of like sit in that and sit in the, the depth of that statement. That's just, and, and I, honestly, I don't think that's kind of how the typical discourse, I'm not saying that's not how a lot of black folks don't think, but in terms of like the discourse and kind of cross cultural spaces, that's not typically the starting point of how, you know, that's a very, especially like a corporate space or church spaces, we're trying to position people to be, as comfortable as possible kind of entering into this conversation. We're not starting by saying if you, if you're not aware of this, you, you represent a threat level to me right, right off the go. Yeah. I hear that. And, but on the other side of it is that there's such a level of discomfort of existing in the world when white folks aren't aware of it, you know, like, yeah. so if you go on the alternative side of it is that there's this germane discomfort, um, that comes with being a person of color in this country. Um, this tied to, um, white ignorance. Um, even recently, we you, you know you have a, a president that's almost funding ignorance, you know, by his defunding of you know um, this this type of education and stuff. So like, the more ignorant um, um, white folks we can have running around, it, it, it represents a, like this this danger that Shamika mentions um, that that is this visceral. Um, it's it's not um, it's not allegory. It's not mm -hmm. you know it's not poetic. It is it is literal danger um, because those ignorance those those the, that ignorance operates machinery that ignorance hires people that ignorance fires people that ignorance educates our children that ignorance carries guns and and, and are are charged to serve and protect um, so th those things are it, it's it's a weighted statement um, but it has to be you know um, mm -hmm. because it's a weighted reality <laughs> you know that, that, we're, that we're, we're stuck with so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I get it too. Like I like I, like on some level, like when I heard heard her first say it, I was like, huh, that's not gonna go over well, <laughs> you know. Like, but on the other side of it, you know, I'm more like, I'm like, it's true, it's absolutely true, um, it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. so. hmm. Um, I've been thinking a lot today too about um things, thoughts that are emerging, thoughts that I'm mulling over as it relates to white supremacy that won't go over well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You say it to yourself. Like, that won't, that won't go well. Like, it's not right. going to land well. Right. <laughs> Doesn't mean right. I won't say it, but <laughs> right. just mindful of the fact that it may not land well. Um, so one of the things that I am prepared um, to bring to the table for us to talk about is privilege. Hmm. 
And so one of the definitions that we've used, maybe we've used it on the podcast. I know we've used it in other places. Um, and you picked it up from um, a, a peer of yours, Daniel, and the definition, and maybe he got it from somewhere else. Um, but the definition is privilege is the ability to walk away. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was thinking about how in episode one, we had a brief conversation about um the world's lexicon that we've picked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by picking up the world's lexicon, we've also adopted their definitions and their meanings of these words. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of us that are Christ followers, it's made me wonder if we've vetted or filtered those words and their meanings through um, our belief in our value system. Mm-hmm. And so privilege is an example of that. Um, and so for the Christ follower, um, privilege is sin. What the world calls privilege turns out to be sin for us because we're not called to turn a blind eye, a blind eye to the suffering of someone else, to right. the oppression of right. someone else, to the dehumanization of someone mm-hmm. else, to our complicity and the causing destruction in the mm-hmm. life of someone else. Right. And right. so I've heard conversations about privilege in the church. I heard, I've heard conversations about how do we wield privilege or repurpose <laughs> privilege. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's completely inconsistent with the gospel. Mm-hmm. The Christ follower does not have privilege. If you elect to walk away, you're sinning. Mm -hmm. And let's just call it what it is. Mm -hmm. You are choosing to not show compassion. Mm -hmm. You're choosing to not show love. As a matter of fact, in a previous episode, when we talked about Matthew 22, 39, which says to love your neighbor as you love yourself, Mm -hmm. Brandon expounded that the baseline for loving your neighbor is how you love yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you decide to turn a blind eye, to the harm that you see around you and harm that you are probably participating in solving, yeah. um, it's causing, not solving. Um, you're not loving your neighbor and it calls into question how you're loving yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and it also takes away the, 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 like one of the things that we, we talked about before is like one of the like prerequisites like for church to work, you know, like if I can be, you know, crass with it for church to work, you have to, you have to believe you're a sinner. You have to believe at some juncture that like you 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 need repentance that you need right. to be healed that there's something um, that needs to be um, that that God needs to to engage you in your personhood and and bring out the 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 person that you're meant to be. Um, there there's this expectation that you come understanding that there's something there's something off about you and about the world, you know. Um, and it, it, that's just an aspect of it that you don't get to engage when you go into a space of saying, like, I'm going to walk away from from circumstances that make me uncomfortable. Because then you don't have an opportunity to engage an aspect of your brokenness. You don't. You, and so, like, you're never actually getting an opportunity to pursue healing in that area. Um, and, and so it almost defeats the purpose. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. It's absolutely it. It can be categorized as sin um, to 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 utilize privilege in church. Um, I think that one of the dynamics that play out is that the nuance, the way church folks figure out ways to 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 manifest that privilege, even in spaces that they say they're going to like, I'm going to stay in this mess. You know, um, what happens in spaces like ours where we're seeing individuals who say, like, you know, like, I'm all about this cause and everything like that. But then when when confronted with it, they do some level, some form of walking away, even in this space, yeah. you know, um, and and I think that's the, for each community to have to figure out. But just just uh, yeah, at the end of the day, the, the idea of walking away is not an option when you, you call yourself a Christ follower. Yeah. What's striking you about this? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I, bring me into one of the passages, the new <clears throat> one of the most the New Testament passages, the most inform, it shaped my faith, um, especially 
in my 20s when I was really coming in contact with the depths of white supremacy was that the famous one of the rich young ruler, mm-hmm. right? And the, um, you know, the gospel writers, I think it's in, th- it's in at least three of the gospels. I can't remember if it's in three or four, but it's obviously a very prominent story for the gospel writers. You know, they take great pains to not depict him as a bad person. In fact, we meet him as somebody who's very dutiful, who's very obedient. He tells Jesus that he's been keeping the commandments mm-hmm. since he was a boy, right? So he's not out to get Jesus. He's not out to prove a point. He's very um, worshipful when he experiences Jesus. He falls prostrate before him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, in that up to that moment, his faith is not really in question. And then, of course, Jesus says, sell everything you have and join me in ministry for the poor. And... Uh, the rich man walks away, emphasized that he's sad when he walks away. Right? So, to me, that's kind of like he exercised privilege, if we want to say to speak. But to your point, you can't really, as a follower of Christ, you actually can't exercise privilege. I mean, you can't exercise privilege. You can't do it without sinning while doing so, mm-hmm. right? So that feels like the most important part of that story is Jesus invited him in, and the rich and ruler chose to walk away. And... Um, I do fear that much of Christianity in our country is that, and this isn't even about making a point about wagging finger at anybody else, it's about saying, I've been in spaces where the whole church collective is choosing to walk away from the pain and choosing to find a way to focus on certain commandments like the rich young ruler did that makes, you know, gives you kind of this veneer of I'm still following Jesus. But when these moments come where there's something bigger that Jesus is trying to reveal something more and calling us f- to fully come in with him into it and we walk away. Um, yeah. And I think there's a, like, it's even just, it's so interesting that that passage adds that he's sad when he walks away, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, who knows if he, even he was conscious that he was sad. It might be the gospel writers who knew mm-hmm. that he was sad and is adding that as commentary for us, right? But like, I think there's a loss that we know of when we exercise privilege and walk away from Jesus and and it shows up as like something's missing or kind of a rootlessness or yeah. um, a hollowness in kind of our Christian experience. And I, I think sometimes that's tied to the fact that without us even consciously connecting the dots, Jesus has called us to follow him into the fullness of his kingdom, and we've walked away. Uh, We've exercised privilege, um, and we're bucking against these terms the whole time when the reality is, I think you're right, that it's, I think it's a sin to, I think it's a sin to exercise privilege, and for for a Christian in particular, when Jesus calls us into his kingdom and we walk away sad. Yeah. Yeah. And just a name for the listener, this is one of those um, ideas or thoughts that we're inviting you to sit in with us because we recognize how countercultural this fine point is. Um, Countercultural, yes, but consistent with the gospel, also yes to that as well. And so um, one of my favorite pastors who you already know who that is. um, Can you? One up. That is not true. Has she ever quoted you? Absolutely. She quoted me quoting Pastor Julian Deshazier. So that's I'll take an adjacent quote. Whatever. You quoting somebody? That's dope. I've actually quoted Daniel before. So, but I'm not. I'm not going to use his opportunity to care for Daniel. I'm going to have to actually tell us about Air Bernard. Whatever. We knew who it was. Brandon brought it up. Don't make me to be the fragile one here. I can live with the fact that you never quote me and don't care about I've me. I've absolutely <laughs> quoted you. And, and nobody is taking note of the fact that I said one of my favorite, not my, not the favorite. So is Dan so. on your list, though? Yes, he absolutely is. Just making sure. Hands down. It's a very short list, too. So How many? I'm not saying. Okay, I'm just, sorry. I'm not saying. It's a short list, though, Daniel, and you're on it. Really, please keep going. <laughs> now you're please. uncomfortable. Yes. All right. Um, <laughs> In his current sermon series, though, one of the things that he said is that, um, or reminded us of, is that free will legitimizes love. 
and that um, dovetails well. He totally talks like you. I can see why you like. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Or she talks no, like absolutely. Him. He talks like me. It's not <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> I, that wasn't to diminish. I can no. just see why. Uh, I was this way when I showed up at his church. So okay. thank you very much. Um, but his fine point is that free will legitimizes love. And that dovetails well with this idea, what we're ruminating on as it relates to white supremacy, right? And so this idea, so we have free will, we have volition. Yes. And you can choose to love or not love, right? right? Or to walk towards or walk away. Yes, so to walk toward the destruction that you're causing or to walk away from it and never turn around and look back too. Mm -hmm. And so um, I really love that. And he also added to that that unless um, love is a choice, it's not love at all. Yeah. Right? Um, So, yeah, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Pretty powerful. So I'm inviting everyone to sit in reflection on this um, and we'll see how we're led to continue to unpack this, not just over the course of this particular conversation, but in future conversations that we'll have on this podcast. Right. So the idea that we're elevating here is that white privilege um, is antithetical to the gospel. What the world calls white privilege is actually a sin because the gospel does not call us to walk away from the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, We are elevating the idea that free will legitimizes love. And unless love is a choice, it is not love at all. Mm -hmm. And that um, how you love your neighbor is actually a reflection of how you love yourself. And that how you love yourself is an extension of how you're relishing in the love of God. If at all. This is a good point to take a break to tell you about a few resources and organizations we appreciate. If you run a small or mid-sized business and want to increase customer engagement through your marketing channels, such as social media, then get in touch with Jade Productions. That's J-J-A-E-D Productions. They can create beautiful video solutions for your business. You can reach them online at jadeproductions.com. Check out Daniel Hill's latest book, White Lies. It includes nine spiritual practices that can help you continue to engage in the important work of racial justice. Please visit whitelivesbook.com to order it everywhere that books are sold. Alfred D. Whitard is the social impact consultancy I founded to work with the cross-section of people and organizations to advance racial equity in communities, enterprises, and systems. Visit us at alfreddwittard.com to learn more about our work and contact us so we can help you or your organization advance racial equity. Let's continue with a critically insightful conversation with Shamika, Brandon, and Daniel. So there's another there's another point um, that I like for us to sit in, and we. We've just started, I want to admit to the listener that as a collective, we've just started to think about this one together very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll, you'll have the opportunity to hear um, how our ideas are shaped um, and, and to see these ideas evolve. You'll get to hear that evolve in real time. So um, one of our uh, producers um, told us that uh, podcast is theater. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I like of the mind, theater right? of the mind. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I really like that as it relates to what we're trying to accomplish in this episode, yeah. um, that you get to see our thoughts evolve and perhaps it feels or comes across as theater of the mind to you. Um, so I have been thinking um, about all of these things um, that might be unpopular. Um, <laughs> and so 
in that vein, I started to think about um, how effective the enemy has been um, with advancing his agenda on earth and how his work as it relates to white supremacy is some of the most effective work that I've seen in my lifetime or that I continue to see in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't, I don't want to give the enemy any credit. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would be dishonest if I didn't say that I'm impressed by how effective he's been with white supremacy, especially because he has no power. Mm -hmm. Um, and all he has is lies. Mm -hmm. He's literally the father of them. Mm -hmm. And the only way that his lies are advanced is if he finds agents to enact or advance those lies on his behalf. Right. Right. And so he has to, he has to be cunning, um, to, to get us to comply, Mm -hmm. um, and to get us to stay engaged Mm -hmm. in his effort. And so I started to think about the tools, the tactics that he uses um, to get us to stay engaged. And I started to think about segregation Mm. and how, by my estimation, it seems that segregation is one of the most effective tools in his arsenal. Mm -hmm. Here's why. So we live in a day and time where you have a growing number of white people in particular who are enlisting to confront and uproot white supremacy um, individually interpersonally, institutionally, and systemically. These are people who want to see it. These are people who want to annihilate it. Right. Um, So I'm like, okay, great. However, um, if they live in cities like the one that I live in, Mm -hmm. um, and if they're white, they live in a racially or ethnically homogenous neighborhood or environment. So they are likely, very, very likely um, on a day to day basis, not seen, the destruction Mm -hmm. that the enemy is using them to cause. Mm -hmm. Right. I think, and Daniel, I'd love to hear from you, obviously from you as well, Brandon. I think that if our white, if white people could see the destruction that they're being used to cause, Mm -hmm. um, they would feel the sense of urgency Mm -hmm. around eliminating white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, they would have a greater level of urgency than they do today. Mm -hmm. Um, because to look at that level of destruction on a day-to-day basis changes you. Yeah. No. To see the economic destruction, the social destruction, the psychological destruction that it causes, um, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. And the enemy knows that. Mm-hmm. And so the enemy uses segregation to shield white people's sight from the destruction. Yeah. Um, because he knows that they will go AWOL and delist from his army if right. they saw what he was using them to do. Right. Yeah. So I like it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge it a bit and see, yeah. see what you think. Sure. Um, so on, on one level, like I, I would agree that like the, the lack of sight on the damage being done allows the perpetual damage to, to be done without any level of engagement or recourse to try to undo it. However, what happens um, to our white brothers and sisters um, and this speculative, obviously, they, they see the damage. They eventually get an opportunity to see the damage um, because there, there are those who have sight and they see it. They see the damage. They get an opportunity to see it. But then they say, what does it look like to see healing in those areas and those spaces? And then they get the invoice. And the tally is that yeah. it's going to cost them something. Yeah. Then all of a sudden they go back to the enclaves that can protect them from their sight and vision. Sure. Um, so we've we've had multiple iterations of um, people lead um, lead things and be a part of movements even in our own community mm-hmm. and when once they tally the costs associated with after all the things they sing you know get galvanized by it, they get energized by it and they once they tally the cost of everything that 
that it's going to cost them to 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 engage in this work, um, what it's going to cost them personally, what it's going to cost them systemically, what it's going to cost them relationally. When they take all those things into account, they make choices to say, you know what, I'm going back to my enclave. Absolutely. I'm going to go, go be protected. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stay as far away from this as I possibly can. Sure. It costs way too much. Like is is that is that a reality you can you you can fit, you absolutely fit into there? and okay. I mean so you know we we we're talking about terms that the world uses mm-hmm. the term has a term the world the world has a term for that they call it performative allyship yeah right yeah. and so all it does for for us is to um, help us to see who's in and who's out right and I appreciate knowing who's in and who's out. I appreciate knowing who's feigning um, a desire to participate, and so that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. We can be clear. Yeah. Okay. What are you thinking? I want to agree with your original point, but he was challenging it, so I needed to let you. I've responded, <laughs> you, you though. You agree with it now. <laughs> it's I'm been the, tested. I've been the... <laughs> you clearly agree with it. It's been tested. No, I mean, I do hear what you're saying, Brian. And, because... and so also, what the world yeah. calls performative allyship is what we call apathy. Right. So let's just... Yeah. Well, I guess I almost think of it like layered, like even if a white person sees, that's no guarantee that transformation is going to happen because they could, like you said, like get the invoices you're calling it and mm-hmm. see what the cost is going to be and retreat after seeing it, which we've seen that happen at River City. That's very painful. It's yeah. perhaps the most painful stories is when we walk with a white person who sees mm-hmm. and then for a period of time they demonstrate what appears to be transformational behavior Um and then exercise privilege again, right? And just walk away, walk away. right? Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's literally profoundly walk away. painful, literally right? Walk away. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that we see is white folks who start to get more proximate, start to see the destruction, and then instantly kind of move to what I would actually call a trait of white culture. Like I think we're groomed to be kind of problem solvers. And um, once we start to see even the hint of how deep the problem of white supremacy goes, we move into immediate problem solving mode that's not based in historical understanding. Yeah, not based in terms of uh, understanding just how white supremacy is at work at multiple levels, you know, to see this problem. And so start trying to solve something that you don't even understand how it goes to deep. I, I would suggest those probably are both real things that have to be attended to. I still would say this root idea of segregation as a means for the evil one to keep us disconnected from pain is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would probably also contend that it's very difficult to have ongoing transformational change for those of us who are white if we are not in a pretty profound way proximate to the impact of white supremacy yeah i mean i think in my and there's a lot of layers even to this one right so our church was founded on this right we picked one neighborhood we're in the humble part neighborhood of chicago one of 77 neighborhoods it was you know at the time half african-american half um, latinx um historically you know generational no poverty you know so there was lots of opportunities to be proximate and that was part of the theory of change so to speak was that those coming from white spaces or white adjacent spaces that this church experience would allow them to be more proximate to the realities of white supremacy mm-hmm. um, and even within that we found and especially as parts of our neighborhood are starting to gentrify you can be physically proximate to a neighborhood that's suffering and still be completely <laughs> Yeah. detached from the suffering that's happening. Right. We experienced mm-hmm. that a lot, right? right? Mm-hmm. And I would say even for myself, experienced that a lot. And when we felt God lead us into West Humble Park, same neighborhood, but kind of the most kind of intense intersection of, you know, some of the social challenges in our city, um, I, I can, it's still visceral for me. I can remember, for one, I can remember feeling super uncomfortable because on the east side of our neighborhood, you could kind of get away with being a multi-ethnic, upwardly, profe- upwardly mobile, young professional kind of group, and it didn't stand out. As we move deeper in the neighborhood, you start standing out more if you were a young professional. Yeah. Um, 
But as we, and that actually is directly tied to the work you were doing, Brandon, as you just kind of opened up our building and teens started coming in regularly and we started getting to know them really well. It's not that we didn't have some of those teens before, but it was, it was so part of the lifeblood of our church. And as it started becoming apparent to me, like how all these stats I heard, but as I started, as we started to realize that their lives actually literally are in danger on a daily basis, yeah. that, that literally the route they choose to walk home from church could put their life in danger, right? Starting to have stories where kids were getting shot or escaping, you know, things like that. Um, and not even immediate, like for one, just like the experience of that to be like, what is that like to live every day wondering that if you're going to survive, right? I mean, it's like we talk about PTSD that comes from, especially in a wartime set, we talk about PTSD from being in a wartime reality, but yeah. like yeah. that that's for people who for an era were in that, right? Because your brain's not supposed to be processing everything as a potential threat, right? So to be living every day like that where you don't ever even get a post, right? Uh, but then to really connect that to white supremacy, right? That like somehow I'm complicit with that, right? Like yeah. there's a reason this neighborhood is like this yeah. as part of the city of Chicago, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. all about the story of white supremacy. And that's all my story, right? And I could live my whole life never even needing to know that story, right? right. So it's no guarantee that just because I saw that I'm going to keep you know, moving into the depth. But, mm-hmm. but I think the reverse is true too. It's hard to like keep going deeper and deeper into the story until you realize like, it's, it's, I think it's exactly what you're saying, Shemika. It's, segregation keeps us um, swimming in our blindedness, right? And yeah. kind of mm-hmm. yeah. falling into these kind of familiar tropes, you know, of blaming the victims for, you know, the, the situation that they're, you know, all from our kind of gated community, so to speak, our suburban kind of community. Um, and so it is, it is disorienting at every single level when you get up close to the devastating realities of white supremacy and have to ask, how did this happen and how am I complicit within that? Yeah. And so at that level, the dangers of segregation, the importance of proximity do feel really significant. No, that, but even, even then I like, and this is me like semi arguing again. Um, so like at one point, it, like, like people can have intellectual gated communities. You can have spiritual gated, mm-hmm. gated communities mm-hmm. and you can be as proximate physically as you want to be. You can actually We've move into the too, neighborhood right? and still have no real proximity to the, the, the lifeblood of the community or the people that are in it. Yeah. And, and I think that, that for me, like, so proximity is a volition thing right you know like you literally have to open up yourself that's right to be exposed to it you have to have that level of vulnerability that that level of self-interrogation where you're saying white supremacy is in me and because it is in me it is impacting what is out there (laughs) you know like and because it's impacting what is out there i am responsible for what goes on out there um and you have to come into like you have to come into this volitionally articulating and holding those things. I, I think a person just being proximate and just experiencing it and just seeing it, that, that's not the conversion point. I think Absolutely the, not. The conversion point, again, is that, that commitment to, yes. to look at yourself, to own it, to, like, to humbly own it, and to step into it with eyes wide open, to, to, be, to be informed about the, this is the, the devastation that you wreak, that you carry out, left to your own devices. This is what will happen if you're not checked, if you're yeah. not holding this, if you're not doing this daily routine over and over yeah. again. Like to 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 look at it and say, this is on me. Yeah. This is on us. Like that's a different kind of conversation than, you know, I just need to get around it. I need to know what's happening. You know what it is? I didn't know that this was happening. <laughs> you know, like 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 media makes us proximate. You know, like we, we have, we, like this data's out there. Visuals are there. We're seeing, you know, like people... And people utilize some of that proximity for other reasons, right? They'll say, like, man, these black kids are killing themselves. What about black and black crime? You know, what about this? Or what about that? You know, you get all these these little tropes that come out of, like, the, their 
their approximation of what's happening because they're not genuinely proximate, because their hearts aren't genuinely proximate, mm-hmm. their their minds aren't genuinely, mm-hmm. genuinely proximate. And I would also say so, we can't, that's why, this is another reason why I think we have to have a, sp- a deep spirituality. Of course, we're coming at it, you know, as pastors and as, as Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where I also think deep spirituality is important, because even if you can find it in yourself to be proximate and to like, see... When when the defensiveness comes in, when the like desire mm-hmm. to run away comes in, when the overwhel- sense of overwhelming, this is too much for me to process. Right, like we do, we we. I'm not trying to compare the journey of the privileged mm-hmm. person to the one who just lives under the oppression and then every day I'm not comparing those at all. But for the privileged person too, like we need the sustaining power of God to be able to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is not. I, I actually would go so far. I don't actually believe that it's in our human nature to be able to do it. I think the selflessness that this requires, the death to self that this mm-hmm. requires, the the profound sense of lament that mm-hmm. this is the world as it is, um, the terror of kind of having to consider how you've been complicit, how your parents were complicit, how your grandparents were complicit, like all of these things go against human nature. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a deep spirituality that's needed once we even choose to be proximate, which again, you're kind of highlighting, you can actually even literally be physically proximate and still not be proximate, right? Yeah. So like that's its own whole field. But then even if you do choose to be proximate, there's a deep spirituality that's needed you yeah. know, in order to like be a sustained, humble learner, you know, in this work. There's no other way. Yeah, there's no other way. Um, because what 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 prompts you to go into those spaces? Right. What what prompts it literally you to goes against human nature. It's yeah. a we, nature. we preserve ourselves from these kind of things when we left to our own devices. Yeah. To the point where people are looking at you like you're crazy for being in those spaces. Like, why are you going there? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the closing ideas for this this uh, conversation was that um, you can't apply, if you're a Christ follower, if right. you're a believer, you can't right. apply um, natural solutions to spiritual problems, right. Mm-hmm. right? And so we're talking about how you need the divine, you need God to sustain your interest, to, to, to stir your volition, yes. to care yeah. about it, yeah. right? Yeah. So that is why you see ebbs and flows and lows of engagement and participation, right? And so for folks who work in the DE&I space, they're very um, accustomed to um, periods of times when the social climate will trigger a high level of interest in their work That's right. and times in the social climate when nobody even cares. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody right. even cares. Sadly, it's usually black bodies that, that trigger, trigger that interest. Black uh, death is a catalyst, yeah, the catalyst for a sustained, for short-term sustained interest yeah. in this work, right? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And, sa- and like be crass about it. It's like throwing another log on a fire. Absolutely. You know? and, and to, to, to stoke the flames of mm-hmm. this interest. And and I, I grow tired of it personally. Like I, I think mm-hmm. there, there, there has to be a sustained approach. And I think, again, like, like Daniel was saying, like there has to be an engagement on the spiritual level. Um, there's, there's no other way. And the call to love is the sustaining power. Yeah. Right. That's the call. That's, it at the, end of the, day. that's right. the that's the underpinning for your right. engagement in this work. And love, as I define it, and I love to hear your definitions if you have some that you like to offer in this conversation. But one that I use often is is a commitment to a decision to benefit others. Yeah. I love it. Love is divine. And that's that's the only thing that will sustain your engagement in battling white supremacy. And so what we're saying here actually gets us close to something that I had hoped would emerge over the course of this conversation. And that's the idea that people who are apathetic, complacent, um, ignorant or passive about engaging in in the fight against white supremacy and confronting it are directly or indirectly responsible for the death and destruction of black black lives. Yeah. Hard to swallow, true nonetheless. So, anything you like to add? 
it should like come as no surprise that it like I mean, if, if we're moving towards truth, it should match up with scripture, right? And so I'm just thinking of perhaps the most famous parable in the whole Bible when it comes to love being expressed, right? When um, the when the teacher of the law tries to trap Jesus and says, what does it mean to love my neighbor, right? Of course, that's Jesus answers the question with the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And so um, within that, we see privilege, right? We see two spiritual leaders who walk by somebody who's been injured, right, and don't attend to him. And then, of course, the the Samaritan, who's of a different racial background and had every reason to hate um, the Jew that had been laying there bleeding. Yeah, Dr. John Perkins, the founder of CCDA, says his hero in the, in the Bible is the Good Samaritan because everything humanly wise would say, I should hate this person, but he still had the love of God in him to stop it. But it just makes me think of the even the whole notion of taking out white supremacy, right? Because Dr. King, of course, famously said, not only should we attend to the person damaged or injured on the road, but we should ask how did the road become like that in the first place, right? Like what made this such a dangerous road that when people who have no other option but to cross through this are going to have to go through harm's way every single time, right? We're not truly loving our neighbor until we've gotten to the root of why this road is so dangerous in the first place. So anyway, just another amen to some of these things. And I I think there's something just direct parallels to this in terms of the need to, in love, fully confront and uproot the reality of white supremacy. Yeah. I think we live with the, the thought that love is optional, right? Yeah. That, like, that that we get to choose to love people or not love people. Mm-hmm. Um, that we get to choose love God's creation or not love God's creation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's a, it's like a weird concept because because it is volitional in terms of like the way that we the way that it becomes authentic or that is authenticated is through making a decision to love, but the ecosystem of how we are created is love is required, and you can opt out of the ecosystem and cause the damage by doing that, you know, by making choices of that. But if you like, we just don't work as a human as humanity without love. Mm-mm. It just doesn't work. It, it, like there's no way because there's nothing that drives um, our decision making, nothing that drives our our our, our care for another person. Um, other than love, you know, um, otherwise we, it's usury. We're just looking for economic benefits or some ancillary mm-hmm. benefits that we can get from interacting with people. And then we make decisions based on that. But, but love is the one thing that, that can transcend conflict, transcend differences, transcend hurt, pain, generational scars and mm-hmm. suffering. Like love is the only thing that can actually trans transcend all those things mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, it, and carry those healing properties um, that you don't get by just thinking nice thoughts about people, mm-hmm. you know, or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or guilt doesn't drive that into right. you as well. Right. Or so. confronting implicit bias. Yeah. It, it's not going to, it's not going to convert you into a caring, loving person, right. you know, um, you just make better choices, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's just something like that. Like, like literally, like if we're going to see movement in this, like, like people have to love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I bottom, when I think about my life and like why I was created and what God, how God would like to use this life that he created for his time on earth, I bottom line my life by thinking about two things, by remembering that um, I am loved. Mm-hmm. That is who I am. Yes. I am loved. That yeah. is my identity. I am loved. Yes. Um, and my purpose is to love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I am loved and my purpose is to love. Yeah. And so if that resonates with you, if you feel that that is your identity and that is your call, um, the call to action here is to sit in that and consider how are you doing that in the context of white supremacy? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. 
How are right. you loving in the context of white supremacy? Um, if you are Christ follower, the word of God tells us that um, if you love, you actually satisfy the whole law. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. It's the only command. So if you do that, you don't even have to consider or think about any of the other yeah. things, the performances, the, the checklist of things that you should or should not do. Simply love. Yeah. Simply wake up every day and renew your decision because you have free will and free will is what legitimizes love. Mm-hmm. Renew your decision to commit to benefit other people. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Go in peace. That wraps up this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Listen In with Shamika, Brandon, and Daniel. Please subscribe to, comment on, and rate Listen In on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, follow us on Instagram at Listen In Pod and join our Listen In Facebook group. Or you can write to us at hello at listeninpodcast.com. Have a great week.